Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Listen to this. This is the tape I found downstairs. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar with a group of my colleagues. Now my wife and I have retreated to a small cabin in the solitude of these mountains. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian ruins, a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. It is entitled Naturan de Manto, roughly translated Book of the Dead. From the gnarled woods of Michigan to the sun-kissed skyline of L.A., we are Halloweenies! You said, I hope you understand when you read this letter that you're better off without me. Cuts around me in stormy weather. Stormy weather. It always surrounds me. Latu Verata. Nikto. Hey, I got on the first try. Welcome yet again to Halloweenies and Evil Dead podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Gerber versus Army of Darkness. And it's astoundingly appropriate that I've adapted such a nickname for this episode because we are covering what marks the end of the Ash Williams Evil Dead film trilogy with coverage of Sam Raimi's 1993, in some cases fan favorite, Army of Darkness. But before we get sucked into a portal back centuries earlier along with our boomstick and beating up Delta, let's hop around this forest and discuss the first time that we remember seeing Army of Darkness. Now let's uh, head on down. You know what? Let's, let's stay closer to my neighborhood, my neck of the woods. This person is about maybe a 10-minute, 15-minute walk from me, and your name is? This is Wolfman, Macronomicon, Gerber, and... Uh, I I love Army of Darkness. I think I I think we first saw it. You know, usually back in the day when Justin and I lived together at our old home in Orlando, we used to watch these movies in the back room. Well, this was not the case. I believe we watched this in the main room, in the main living room on the big TV for this uh, this baby. And I will say, I, this is one of my favorite openings to the franchise. Um, I love that once again, and we'll get into it. But I love that once again. It's a real really quick retelling, and then but I love when he goes into the portal and the music kicks in and it's so like, it gives me chills. I'm like, yes, like here we go, you know? Um, but we'll talk about that later as well. But yeah, I'm really excited to be here and to be talking about army. Sweet. And let's head on down further. The South, 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 South side of us here. Not really a Chicago. What's the name of that city you're living in again? Motherfucker is Chicago. <laughs> Fuck with it. I pay. I paid two hundred dollars for the privilege of having an automobile. I live in <laughs> Chicago. Uh, this is Mike Boomstick Vanderbilt coming to you live on tape from the South Side of Chicago. <laughs> and the first time I saw American Arctis was February nineteenth, nineteen ninety three, because my parents took me and my friends all to go see it. Man, that night. Because we were so jazzed for it, because, and I have this in my notes, I read about it in Fangoria, issue 115, August 1992, 
and uh, went out and found the other movies. Uh, we, uh, I think the funny well, a story I'll never forget is that, so I read about it in the summer of 92. In October of 1992, Bruce Campbell's going to be at the Weekend of Horrors out in Villa Park at the Odeum. And we all have to go meet this guy. And, you know, my dad, we all loaded into the car on a Saturday morning, went out to the Odeum, and we're standing in line waiting to get in. This is when horror conventions were real low rent. Like, Mm -hmm. when we got in there, Bruce Campbell was just sitting at a booth, and there was no line. You could hang out, and you could shoot the shit with him. They had a little TV with clips from Army of Darkness on it, including, like, the extended little... And this is all director's cut stuff, so it was, like, the extended little Ash sequence and everything. But I'll always remember, never forget... Limo pulls up while we're all standing in line, and uh, Bruce Campbell sticks his head out, you know, and says something like, oh, hey, what are you guys waiting for? You know, everybody laughs and cheers, except for the four guys behind me. They're like older teenagers or like 20-somethings, and I'll start muttering, oh, he thinks he's so fucking cool now. Oh, man, fuck that guy, you know, and I think that was just a sign of things to come, maybe, for sometimes the way I feel about Bruce Campbell now. Oh, we'll but, talk uh, about that maybe uh, in a couple months. A little teaser. Yeah, but I was so I was so jazzed to meet him. He could have been a nicer guy. And uh, yeah, Army of Darkness, seen it opening night uh, in a mostly empty theater. I was going to say, I think City it was Fort. you, your friend, and your parents were the only people that actually saw this in theaters. There, so yeah, well, a... there were four. There were four guys <laughs> in front of us who uh, were there too, but they could have just. I don't know. I think they. We're just uh, teenagers looking for a place to like sneak booze into or something. Add that to the $25 that the box office take for this <laughs> film. And I was so mad when like, I saw those numbers because I truly thought like this was going to be it for these guys. Like, well, I mean, for me, I remember the only thing I remember of Army of Darkness as a kid was I remember seeing the trailer. And in the trailer, he does say groovy. And that's all I knew. I had not known anything about Evil Dead at that point in my life. I knew nothing about who Bruce Campbell was at all at that point in my life. So I kind of just dismissed it, came and went, bombed, whatever. My big introduction to Bruce Campbell was later that year with The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Oh, couldn't which, wait for that show. What's that? I couldn't wait for that show. Oh, like, yeah. I, like... And I actually, I loved that show. And it was another one of those classic one-and-done shows a little too subversive. It was kind of like a mixture of Western and fantasy and sci-fi. It was like, the, yeah, it was like too much like the wild, wild West. Uh, yeah. And Westerns were not in vogue. At that exactly. Point. And that was the thing. But a great supporting cast. And, you know, he his horse slept in his room with him. He treated like a human <laughs> being. Jeffrey Boehm and Carlton Cuse were behind that. You know, Jeffrey Boehm famously was involved in the Dead Zone script, uh, Last Crusade, a number of other projects. And Carlton Cuse obviously was one half of the people who did Lost. So, I mean, they had some pretty incredible people behind that show. But it was not until I watched The Evil Dead that I realized, oh, hey, it's Briscoe County Jr. I mean, that's how out of the loop I was on on Bruce Campbell at that point. Eventually saw Army of Darkness, fell in love with that movie. And and, um, yeah, what what about you, though, for our last uh, co-host in this episode? Or maybe he's dead. Oh, me? <laughs> yeah. The last well, wait, no, no. Here, oh, this is, hey, this is uh, Michael Maniac Ash Rothman. You know, I, I was going to go see this at the show, and I saw the poster, and I said, no. Uh, two tickets ah! for Neil Jordan's <laughs> The Crying Game, please. You're no. lying. You're lying. <laughs> no, I lie. I, I, I love the idea of eight-year-old Mike Rothman going to see The Crying Game <laughs> Yeah, buying you know, two tickets he- of that. Well, it was either that or John Turturro's Mac. You know, Mac uh, hit the box office that uh, Mac, your movie came out that weekend. How, how about that? 
I'd rather not talk about it on this episode, but. Well, it's okay. Cause uh, honestly, I didn't actually see this until much, much later. I saw it sequentially with, uh, with all the other films. I was a blockbuster pack rat. I would go in there and grab everything. And uh, especially with franchises, I just kind of grab all of it. And I remember running this one from blockbuster on a Sunday. And I remember the sun setting like outside my bedroom. I had like two windows that that could see out and it would always show the sunset. And the sunset like literally was setting as Ash was riding off from the, uh, you know, after saying, you know, uh, later to Embeth Davis. And I kind of remember feeling melancholic about it because I, I knew that there were no other movies to lean on. And I just had loved this run and I had so much fun. So for me, it always had this kind of sad wash to it. It was like almost like a Sunday Scaries before Sunday Scaries. But I think as I'll discuss today, I, I, I mean, this is like, it's like the Casca Mamanchiato of the franchise. It just gets better with age. I, I, I just, I fucking love this movie. This was the film that I was the most excited to talk about when we were, you know, discussing the idea of going into the Evil Dead franchise, even more so than the original one, just because I feel like the original one has been talked to death. Whereas like Army of Darkness, I still think there's a lot to plunder, which, uh, I think we will today, so I'm excited. I think you're right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this episode is twice the length of the theatrical release, <laughs> yeah. at the very least. <laughs> I think, or at least the two episodes that we'll have combined will be longer yeah. than that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about this one, like you said, Mike. Um, I mean, and, and rightfully so. Those first two entries are, in my opinion, classics of the genre. And they, but, you know, they have been kind of broken down to death in, in certain ways, and we didn't help by any means in terms of our discussion about those movies. But I'm definitely looking forward to, to talking about this one. And, and somehow, upon my most recent rewatch, continues to get better and better. Plus, I'll, maybe I'll have some hot takes about this trilogy at the end of this episode. Or I guess it would be the end of our second episode, which will be hour four or five of this podcast. Yeah. But, um, you know, before we talk about Army of Darkness specifically, you know, there is another Evil Dead movie. Done. It's finished. It's waiting to be released upon the world. And let's talk about that in our next section that we call All Right, You Primitive Screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick! It's a 12 gauge double barreled Remington, S Mart's top of the line. You can find this in the sporting goods department. So, as we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, Evil Dead Rise is on its way. We, we may or may not know the month it's coming out, but Mike, we've got sources, but maybe we, we don't want to say it because maybe we were told not to say when it's coming out. Yeah, we, we, you know, we can't confirm or deny uh, okay. when they are going to be out there, but let's just say that our current trajectory is uh, not too bad. So. Yeah, I would say if you had bets on 2022, feel comfortable in your bet. Yeah. That's, that's a wide open swath of, 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 I know. of, of days. That's fine. That's giving you 240, 270 days to play with, so we're fine. Okay, so that's great. But really not a whole lot of news as of now on that front, though. Or do you have something, like Not on the, that front, but on the other front, which uh, is uh, the Evil Dead game. They oh, got I've got a whole thing there. here on that. That's what I was okay, going to cool, go cool. into. Here oh, we go. awesome, awesome. Well, I've got the... And, and, and once again, look, when it comes to games... If it's not Donkey Kong Country three, I, I don't know what's going on anymore. It's <laughs> been a while. Justin's a huge. Yeah. It, Justin's a there huge a, Twitch there gamer. There was a third. There was a third one. Absolutely. You know, I, I, Justin, I got to tell you, everybody who's who I talk to at the bar who either wants to talk about the podcast or about the upcoming Evil Dead game, when I mentioned that we, you and I, will potentially do a Twitch stream where we have no <laughs> idea what we're doing, 
they can't wait. They're it, it so would take excited five minutes this. to figure out how to start the game. I'm not kidding. That's how totally illiterate I am when it comes to video games now. I, I, do I have to hold down the, the bottom buttons at the same time? It's where, mine, it's where Rothman and I will be like the vultures sitting there on your shoulders Over during our that shoulders Twitch, telling just us what telling to do. you, just yelling at you, like, what are you doing? No, go left. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, well, I'm, I'm out in like three minutes. I, my patience for this stuff is, uh, is not, not, not there. All right. You know, I'll be like, I'll be like it's, you push start, push start on the menu. That's it. You know, you can't even get past that part. <laughs> like, my muscle memory is using like the old Nintendo controller trying to hit down, down, down. Nothing's happening. Do we hit two players here? Um, it's like, no, there's no one here. They're, they're playing it online. I don't want the joysticks. Give me the up, down, left, right arrow. Robin's uh, video just turns to the the cat from Too Many Cooks crawling towards the big red button to end it all. <laughs> no, it just cuts to the end of uh, Be- Beneath the Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston blows up the world. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, Spoiler hey. for the entire what franchise. What once was a lush green planet is, is now, now dead. dead. One of the greatest endings of all time. Or maybe endings of all time. Maybe it's maybe it's a little bit like uh, in The Exorcist, where like I'm watching it, and then Charlton Heston's face actually imposes over my face, and it's just like, ah, you know, as we're playing, like Pazuzu or something. Well, and that's me anyway. threw stuff out the window down the yeah, then that's right. exactly. <laughs> no, damn these um, dirty gamers. Listen, we've talked a lot about games because, like you said, my evil death. The game is coming. Actually, when this episode comes out, what what date is it supposed to come out, Mike? I know we're oh, it, right it'll now. be out at that point. Um, I believe it. No, it, uh, it'll be the week of the game coming out. So exciting week for Ooh, Evil Dead! Wow. So if you're listening to this, the, the day wow. this episode drops, congratulations because on Spooky Friday Thirteenth. Hey, we're back to finally a Friday Thirteenth, right? Finally, Friday Thirteenth yeah. is happening on May Thirteenth specifically. Evil Dead: The Game is coming out, and guess what I did? I went to this website called Bloody Disgusting. Have you ever heard of it? It's pretty good. Oh, no. <laughs> pretty cool website. And I'm going to read. You know, the, the premier horror website. The only the, horror website that matters. That matters. Yes, cheap trick style. And uh, I, I, I culled, as it were, this article that our editor-in-chief, John Squires, wrote. And let me just go ahead. I'm not even going to play around. I'm just going to read this goddamn thing word for word. Here we go. Ready? Coming from Saber Interactive, Evil Dead the Game is primarily a multiplayer experience pitting four survivors from the franchise up against the forces of evil. Of course, you'll be able to play solo with computer bots if you prefer, and you'll also be given the option to play single-player side missions that will expand upon the lore of the Evil Dead world. I personally, I don't understand what what that means, single-player side missions versus, help me out, Mike Rothman. Oh, Lord. Um, well, single player is when you could play solo so alone. And multiplayer is when you go online and you could play uh, you know, campaigns with other players that are all across the world, you know? And okay, so, uh, so you know, side, side, side missions, Justin. Now, let me... Yeah. Side missions are... Mm-hmm. So you have the through-line game, right? Yes. But then you can go in and there are, there are alternate side missions that you can play on top of that separately from the game if you want to continue playing more of The Evil Dead. Like, let's okay. say if you're playing Evil Dead 2 all the way through, right? Well, maybe a side mission is like, find the Deadite Squirrel. Okay, so is this like in uh, Super Mario Brothers when you would hit that special block and the vine would shoot up? And you can go and get, like, bonus coins? Is that like a sure. side yeah, mission? It's, not, it's, it's, a lot, it's, it's a little bit like that. A little bit But like it's not that, built yeah. into the, into the through-line game, right? No, Is it, no, like, no. it going to be like Arkham Asylum? Or, or Arkham... Um, I think it'll be a little bit like Arkham Asylum, but I don't, I don't, I don't know how the free-roaming is going to work if, like... You're going to be, you know, you could log into the game and you're just roaming around the the camp. Well, not the camp. If you're roaming around the the cabin, and then maybe you can go off to side missions or whatever. Or if you have to go, I yeah. think you'll probably end up being like Friday the Thirteenth, where you have to like 
kind of set up the side missions yourself or, you know, mm. it'll load up something or whatever. Well, like, either way, it'll be adjacent to the main through line. So. Yeah. Vanderbilt and I are right now like that, uh, the old woman in an airplane when Robert Hayes is telling that story and they cut back and she's hung herself because we have no clue what's going on. Uh, Jesus. I, I, guys, at the bar last night, I had uh, this girl, you know, real nice girl, comes in for old fashions. She's like a production, like a script supervisor on uh, stuff around Chicago. And she's telling me about, Mike, I picked up the new Game Informer and it's got Ash on the cover. And, it, and she's just talking about this. I'm, mmm. <laughs> I feel like a, I feel like the, the the monkey pissing into its own mouth on that pitchfork review of uh, the Kings. Well, <laughs> I have no clue what's going on. Well, Justin, I'm sure you, that you I'm sure you deal with this where you know uh, most guys our age still play video games and yeah, people sure. just assume that you do. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm totally out of just out of the loop. Like I'm the one who's the outsider looking in. I don't feel like yeah. there's, there's no superiority. I just I just of all the pop no. culture things I absorbed and continue to absorb as, as time went on. I guess I had to sacrifice video games where I would just not be doing anything. Oh, at all. I don't need like, an, I don't need another time waster in my life. I understand why people make that assumption because Justin, you normally wander around in Final Fantasy V cosplay. I do. It's true, and I just didn't know what I was basing it on. I, I knew I saw something fleetingly, and then and here I was. But let's talk a little bit about the. Well, what is this game basing this on? Game. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, yeah. Just the actual plot of the game, this is coming from the developers, uh, Tom Willits and Craig Sherman, who work at Saber, and they spoke with Slasher Radio uh, a little while ago, and they said, when you complete those missions and you unlock some characters and some skins, I'm not even going to ask what skins are, and you get access to something that we call the Nobi recordings. Professor Nobi is a very important character in the franchise because he found the Necronomicon and he brought it back to the cabin to translate. So, as in the movies... He records himself doing these things, so we thought, what a great way to continue the story. So you will be rewarded when you do these missions with a Nobi recording, and there are lots of them. If you listen to it, in some cases, it's Professor Nobi talking on his own. One of them is with Annie, his daughter from Evil Dead 2, whom we met. She's explaining sort of what's going on. We were able to fit these recordings, I think, as a fan, in a really cool way that you'll recognize some dialogue in them from the film, and it keeps going. And a little bit more of the scene you hear was not in the movie kind of like we're saying this is what happened after the scene or right before these Nobi recordings we've used them as a way to bring the game into the Evil Dead universe you know as someone who's I, I don't know if I'll ever actually play the game but that's kind of exciting to me because as I watched Army of Darkness and I think we've joked about it on the show about how these days there would be a Professor Nobi prequel Mm, and I started Nobi. thinking, like, oh, you know, though, as, much, as much as we don't need it, I also was watching Armory Darkness saying, man, that would actually be kind of cool, I guess. And maybe this is the best way to do it. You think yeah, it'd be Chris Pratt? Media. Think they're going to bring Chris Pratt in? Why not? Every, yeah, all the jo- oh, God. All the jobs in Hollywood go to Chris Pratt <laughs> and um, his side. And I, why don't you know, put that fucking uh, Velociraptor in there, too? Oh, Blue? Blue. Yeah. Blue and Nobi find the Kandarian ruins. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's it's, no it's, explanation it's, for why the there's a of the plot. There. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> never once. Well, the, the conclusion of the plot is this. They say the story goes that Professor Nobi accidentally summons the demon. Henrietta's wife is possessed, as we know. And he's recording this. And what he does is he looks at the Necronomicon and he sees Ash. He sees the hero from the sky. So he tries all these incantations to try and summon Ash. And he ends up getting all these other characters who are friends of Ash. That's why we've got people from the show, from Evil Dead 2, from Evil Dead, and all this other stuff. And uh, that's how they end up uh, getting in there. 
and they start showing up in the cabin. And they all go off and help to fight the demons. Wait, that's really that's really what it is. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's cool, right? That's a fun. That sounds like a fun way into the game, and it's also perfect timing for everything that's been going meta, uh, especially with uh, the, films the multi lately, the, so. the, the multiverse, multiverse film, which has become a genre unto itself. Yes, good timing for this video game. And I, once again, I, I, I believe it or not, like I said, I'm not a big uh, gamer, as it were. But I did love watching specifically my brother and, and Rothman play that Friday the 13th game because it felt like you were watching something that was taking place in that universe. And it was done with great care of people, from people who truly you know, know and love the insides outs of, the, of that franchise. And I feel like we're going to get the same thing here from what I've seen. And I'm looking forward to once again watching <laughs> Mac and Rothman play this game. Mac, are you looking forward to this game still? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm like... So close to just picking up a PS5 just to play the game. It's sad. It's sad. No, it'll be fun. <laughs> I mean, I, mean it's, I think it's it's funny because like I just noticed when I was playing um, the Shout Factory Army of Darkness Blu-ray, which is only the really reason I ever have actually turn on my PS4 anymore. Although I did have a run last year where I was like catching up on all the Resident Evil games, so that's fun. But I noticed that my controller is not working. I was like, yeah, of course. Of course my fucking system is going to start fading like right when this new game comes out. So I'm hoping that, you know, it seems like it was starting to work towards the end, although for some reason it just kept fast-forwarding through the dock for no reason and finally I had to turn off the controller. But like, you know, it looks like it was possessed on its own. Maybe the, the Necronomicon got it. Or maybe Nobi's Incantations got my controller. But mm. I, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited for this game. I really can't wait. I, I think they're... I don't know. I think they're kind of overstretching themselves with this plot a little bit. Like, first off, it makes absolutely no sense still, even if they're like, yeah, you know, we, we came up with the story. Well, we already know that in the story, like he, his incantations lead to just the, ne- the the evil dead coming out. So wait, so is this in another alternate universe or is it like, it, it's, it's just interesting that like they, they're bending backwards over this when it really doesn't still doesn't make sense in the lore of this franchise. But then again, when does the linear storyline? All the movies never did storyline. <laughs> No, they don't. Exactly. So, what know. is it saying? Is it saying that Nobi or Nobi's daughter? Like, are we supposed to believe that she survived and is trying to bring Ash back? No, he's doing it. No, he's doing oh, okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Although, and as we'll get into another episode with the video games, uh, it's not the end of Annie either. So mm. she appears in another one. So I know it's gonna be fun. I'm really excited. I mean, the thing that has me just jazzed is. Mac and I playing as like Scotty and Ash respectively, because those are the two characters we always <laughs> quote. And I'm so excited for us to be sitting there and just fucking saying the same three or four quotes over and over again. I just want to know if you, if you like hit the like Z button and just keep saying party down. Like party. <laughs> I wasn't honking at you. Uh, yeah, it's your girlfriend, Ash. You figure it out. <laughs> She's dead, yeah. Ash. She's dead. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. It's like you're pulling a string on a doll, just repeatedly <laughs> saying it over and over again. Well, one of the games li- literally had a button that was dedicated to Ash's one-liners, and I think I like expired oh, them God. within like 30 seconds. Within like w- when I first got the game, I was like, "Oh, awesome!" And then I would just hit the the button over and over again. And then I think within like two minutes, I was done. When you play with someone else and you just incessantly do that, you don't even let them finish the line. You just keep pressing the button. Yeah. Just to fuck with <laughs> pretty much. Absolutely obnoxious nightmare. And I can't wait to watch you guys play this. Um, is there, so that's really all we've got right now on the Evil Dead front. And I don't think we have any updates on, on Scream 6, although it's wild to think that once this episode comes out, we will be less than a month away from production starting on Scream 6. Yeah. Isn't that insane? 
It's although exciting. we did get, uh, although on the Halloween front, we did get a lot of news coming out of CinemaCon, and guess what? Oh yes, it's gonna be oh. it's gonna be pretty badass, and I, it's gonna be pretty fucked up. And take it, Mike, take it. it. It's, gonna, it's the, gonna be it's gonna be. Uh, I I don't have it with me right now, but um, they there was like a, a description of the trailer. Jamie Lee Curtis premiered it, and it essentially just boils down to um, pretty much every beat that we get from any other trailer over the last two or three years, which is like you know, evil. The face of evil came about, and it was like footage from the 1978 version, which we've you know they've plundered at every level at this point, and then. You get footage of uh, Laurie and Michael fighting in a in a kitchen. Now I heard I heard through the grapevine that it was a brutal fight. It's a brutal can fight. Anybody Mac. speak to and, that? And, well, I can speak to the fact that uh, at the end of the trailer, Mike's on the table and Laurie is presiding over him. So uh, and, and I'll like say this: she's not uh, preparing dinner. You know what I mean? No, she's, she's not. not. You know, it's. Uh, She's not covering any pumpkin either. Let's just say this isn't your average. This isn't your old Girl Scout anymore. Hey, this is not your father's Lori. No, no it's, it's not, your, not. It's not even your older brother's Lori. Not your you grandfather's Lori. No, it's not even like your your great uncle's Lori anymore. This is something different. Like time for a Samhain sacrifice. <laughs> I can't wait to see what happens when she gets her hands on Halloween. I finally, at long last, Halloween ends. Right? That's what, maybe that's what the whole thing's that about. That is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've embraced the name. Do you think that it'll just be like the, the, the sun will rise and they'll say, oh shit, Halloween ended, but Michael Myers is still alive. They can get away with it. What if this one ends with the ending of Evil Dead where like the entity comes through the town of Haddonfield and then just, just Laurie turning around screaming and that's it? No, you know what would happen? It would be, you think the movie's over with, but it turns out Michael Myers is still alive. And then I stand up in theaters and I go, for God's sake, how do you stop it? How do you stop it? Very much Ash style. Cue the March of the Dead. I think this is going to probably end with us being uh, disappointed. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. You can only be disappointed what? if you have expectations. That's a That's great true. point. That is Put a that good point. my tombstone, by the way, yeah. Vanderbilt. That's my tombstone yeah. right there. <laughs> with like a little Blum, Blumhouse logo underneath or whatever. But, uh, wait, time. I'm, let's mark this down. We're at the 25-minute mark of this particular episode. I'm guaranteeing Mike Vanderbilt will say Halloween Ends is actually the third best Halloween movie. <laughs> And the best of the new trilogy. I'm, I'm calling it. I'm calling it. Vanderbilt, right. mark it down. I said it. I, I, We're recording I, this on May 1st, 2022. <laughs> I'm declaring it right recorded. now. It's been recorded in time on this episode. Yes, it's happening. No need to write Live it. Justin, I, I've had low expectations for most things <laughs> in my life. Oh my but none, God. May, none may be lower than <laughs> Halloween ends. But that's why I think you'll end up probably liking it. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, so like, I can't it's, this is it easy. I, I am. I am. I am willing it into existence. That I, I love will, it. I love it. I can't I, wait to I see will. it. Of course, I loved seeing the second one on the big screen. I can't oh, wait to yeah. see it. I, yeah. I can't wait to see it. No, no hyper. No joking around. I hope around. Rothman's with us. Uh, any other franchise stuff going on right now? From anything else that we that uh, hasn't been listed? Uh, Friday Thirteenth still lingering in hell and. Elm Street still whatever. Well, our boy Elm Street, uh, our boy Elm Street, our our boy Robert England, <laughs> he's going to be back in Stranger Things four, and all po- you know, all signs point to uh, him having a, a pretty elaborate role. Mm. He's playing Mr. Creel, Victor Creel. So um, we're going to be talking a lot about that on uh, our spinoff show that we have at the Losers Club, Talking Hawkins. And I have a lot of uh, predictions that there's going to be a lot of Elm Street ties to this new villain. And I mean, look, the Duffers have already been saying that Nightmare on Elm Street has a huge, huge influence on this new season. So it looks like, I mean, you know, Friday the 13th this month, got Elm Street vibes and Stranger Things. 
Lori's going to battle Michael finally in Halloween Ends. And then we got uh, Scream 6, promo, you know, filming, and we got a new Evil Dead. It's like, it's, I got to say, the Halloween is pretty in vogue, you know? Uh, the, the vibes are uh, there. I think, so. I, think, you know, I think we're all pretty cool. We're yeah, talking about uh, you know, franchise <laughs> news. To tie it, you know, back into this episode, there was a recent story also published on Blighter Disgusting. The headline that Liam Neeson would be mm. very interested in to read a Dark Man Legacy sequel script, which, of course, the original film is from... Ramey, it kind of, we're going to talk about that later in the episode, but I wanted to read this. This was an interesting quote, I thought. Uh, on that note, filmmaker Josh Rubin, scare me, Werewolves oh, Within, God. has been lobbying to direct a new Darkman reboot movie for a while now, frequently tweeting about his desire to bring the Sam Raimi superhero back to life. At this time, however, no plans are in motion. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Let's All go, right. if I could go to a betting <laughs> site right now, at this point, I'm going to say that Josh Rubin will direct the next Darkman movie. No. I'm saying it right. I'm, I'm saying I'm, this is it's probably not going to happen. happen. Put that right no, next to the put that right put the timestamp on With it right Mike next Vanderbilt, to Halloween ends the greatest of the Halloween okay. movies. <laughs> and I made a Josh joke. Rubin I made a joke on Twitter Darkman. when this happened. No, I'm I'm it can't happen because if that happens all pandemonium goes loose and and I made a joke and right after you know I started noticing all these other filmmakers that were tweeting and lobbying for you know, the, the, the reins of whatever franchise was announced that day. And it reminded me of the scene in Waterworld where the hungry, you know, villains are all hanging out and they throw out a fucking can of spam and everyone just jumps on it and like fights to the death for it. Like, I feel like that's where we're at now in Hollywood. Like everyone's so desperate to make something, but we're only living in the land of IP. So when any IP is somewhat interesting to someone, you get everyone, all these filmmakers just jumping on Twitter. Ah, I'll take it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do this movie. And it's just like, is this well, where we're at now? Like, this is where we're at in, in society? Like, we're just going to well, lobby on public? Like, it's just fucking crazy. Like, And, and it's frustrating because it. it's, where we it's, are. That I, it's like they, it's like what they do with all the Marvel stuff now where they take a innovative, interesting filmmaker and give them these properties, and then they really don't do anything that interesting or innovative with it. So why are we <laughs> – even like Darkman, which is when – you know, Darkman's lower tier IP, but it's still IP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny because another story that was involving, you know, the, another headline worth discussing here is, uh, you know, we got a new Sam Raimi movie coming out in the, fir- the first one in almost, you know, what is it, 10 years now, right? 10, oh, 10 or 9? Yeah. What was his last movie? It was Oz the Great and Powerful. And he talks about it extensively on Rolling Stone, which they, you know, they, they were proudly declaring it's the most extensive Sam Raimi interview out there. Congratulations, Rolling Stone. They, he talks about, like, he's like, yeah, no, they, um, <laughs> they asked that very question, Mike. They said, um, so did you get a lot of creative freedom on this? And his response is the most, like, and he, he's very self-aware about it. He's like, well, I'm going to sound like I'm, you know, speaking um, out of two mouths or whatever, but, uh, you know, I did have complete creative freedom. Having said that, you know, this is a Marvel movie and there are a lot of specifics that we have to make sure are in there and all the characters have to be a specific way. And there are a lot of characters that are in there. But within that, we get creative control. And I was reading that in the shower because I like to read stories in the shower sometimes when I'm just because I can't get off my phone. You know, it's an obsession. Wait, you're reading this in the shower. Yeah, I was reading I was reading news in the shower because this is, you know, it never stops. But do you have like a waterproof phone or something? I don't understand. I'm, I'm picturing a little like the thing you hang from the the rear view mirror in the car for the phone. Yeah, I'm just Except like, he's, eh, got it, he's got it hanging from the faucet. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's no, scary. But I, I just was laughing. And it's just like, this is what a fucking joke that like, and that's goes right into your saying. It's like, yeah, you could go and do this IP, but I'll just, I'll, I'll have another prediction right now. I, I can't hmm. wait. We're filming this or filming. We're recording this on Sunday, May 1st. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to be seeing Doctor Strange multiverse movie on Thursday. I'll be there oh, yeah. with you. I, I, I'm it excited to see cool. it. I'm excited to see it. I mean, you know, it's very exciting to see a new Sam Raimi movie. I am going to have to mute everything because I'm sure on Twitter everyone's going to bend over backwards and be like, "Did you? This is a Raimiism. This is a Raimiism." I guarantee you, we're going to walk out and go. There's there's some moments of Raimi, I guess, in there, but not really. No, because there's we don't live in an era where this allows it, and that's what we're, I'm going to get at. I'm only saying all this because I really want to stress how. The, the uniqueness of Army of Darkness, and, and, especially and, and, in 1993, and it's a disparity here that that you will be discussing. I feel like in this throughout this whole episode, and then you know you can wake up afterwards after you finish both of these episodes and go, "Oh, I'm in 2022, and um, here we are." <laughs> All right. So my big declaration in this section was that, is that Josh Rubin will direct the next Darkman movie. Mike Rothman, what was your declaration again? Is that everyone's going to be, you know, talking about how Sam Raimi's all over Multiverse of Madness, but there won't be any Sam Raimi over Multiverse of Madness. Good. Uh, okay. And and Vanderbilt, what was yours besides the one I assigned uh, to you? Of the future. <laughs> I, I think I, uh, I'm going to take. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take the Halloween three one. That'll be mine. That's I don't yours. think I made. A, I don't the... think I made any proclamations in this one. The only <laughs> thing I do want to add on this whole conversation is that we need to bring back the idea that selling out is wrong. We need to bring back that Gen X <laughs> ideal. It's it's tough because selling out that's a whole other podcast we could talk about what what is selling out what isn't selling out these days. We were just talking about this, Justin. Yeah, but that was especially when it comes to music too. Mm-hmm. But uh, Matt, do you have any proclamations that you'd like to make, unfair or otherwise? Yeah, I actually I disagree with everybody on this uh, this topic. I've I've actually taken to Twitter and uh, I'm going to be. Uh, I'm front oh. runner for taking over the batteries not included franchise. Uh, this is exciting. Moving yeah. forward. And I think uh, I think people have been. I just hear it, you know. It's like you put your your ear down to the the railroad track, and you can hear the people saying, "We we want more batteries included." Well, you know, I think you got to get in touch with Brad Bird, who did famously write that movie. Did you know that? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was his debut. It was his debut. Well, he's looking he's looking for a comeback after Tomorrowland, so maybe batteries not included will be a good one. Well, we'll see what happens. We wish we wish Mac all the best on that project. Mac, would you would it be called the same thing, right? It'd just be called batteries, not or would it be called batteries. Well, since with the you asterisk. guys are some of my best friends, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you in. I'll let you in a little bit, a little on a secret. Hmm. So I've been kind of also tweeting at JJ, and um, you know his first uh, big script was regarding Henry. So I'm thinking of doing some kind of crossover thing there. Oh, regarding batteries. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. Asterisk regarding. Well, maybe, batteries. maybe, maybe ah. like, like, well, like new, <laughs> like new Ford. You, you laugh, but Harrison has yes, been I revisiting do. all of his franchises. Yes. True, it's true. So I think I none think more famous see, like, than the batteries Henry, not included franchise. What is Henry up to now? And maybe he stumbles across some some you know alien spacecrafts. Well, and he's going to get batteries at the convenience store, and he gets shot in the head or something ah. like that, you know. Um. And only only they can save him. Yeah, oh exactly. My God. Yeah. Maybe they have to time travel and, and, and kill John Leguizamo before he shoots him in the head. And regarding Henry, was it Le- hey, can- Leguizamo in that scene? Yeah, oh, Leguizamo is wow. the one that shoots him. Yeah, yeah, he's the one. That? Yeah, the pest himself. The pest. Bloodline, write- Bloodline season twos. John. We Leguizamo. should write Johnny Five into this hey, somehow. Johnny he's Five is really be great in, in, in Bloodline, <laughs> despite yeah. the season. No, he is. He is. No, but the, pop- instead of Johnny Five still alive, it would be after Henry lives at, after getting shot, and he goes, "Henry's still alive. Henry's still alive." <laughs> but what would he be? Would he still paint like Ritz crackers in this uh, sequel, or is he going to do like something a little no, more? No, he's modern? just painting Jessica Tandy what and Hume Crone. This is the. I, I was, right, here's another little secret. Here's the teaser. Here's the teaser trailer. 
Mm. It's 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 some some something's being painted and it's kind of going kind of <laughs> falling all over. And you kind of hear like the lament configuration kind of like music in the background kind oh, of. Oh, the thing. Hans Zimmer score. And then it pans out and it's the Ritz crackers, but it's not. It's actually it's a it's a robot ship, little tiny robot ship painting the Ritz cracker, and it's like regarding batteries. And if oh, you know, you know. My and I think no, no, are, but Mac, what you have to have is like as the robot's painting it, it turns around and winks at the camera <laughs> first. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, guys, listen. All right. <laughs> it's time to go to Professor Noby's study. <laughs> the book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. It was written long ago. And the seas ran red with blood. It was this blood that was used to ink the book. Okay, so I know a lot of people are here for our regarding batteries talk, but <laughs> which Vanderbilt's already plotting out how to do some great uh, art for later on. I cannot wait to see what he comes up with. But uh, let's talk about Army of Darkness. Army of, we got to get together here. Let's talk about Army of Darkness, for God's sakes. And let's start before, as, as it always was in the pre-production era. Uh, let's say, you know, it was the failure of Sam Raimi's movie Crime Wave that he co-wrote with the Coen brothers over at the flawed Embassy Pictures that led to, to uh, Evil Dead 2. But this time around, it was actually the success of a Sam Raimi film for a, a far bigger studio that led to yet another return for the Deadites, the successful movie in question, Universal Studios' 1990 Darkman, an original superhero movie. I, I, you believe I just said that? An original superhero movie based on a Raimi short story that he not only directed but co-wrote with Ivan Ramey, and everybody please keep that name in mind a little bit later in this section. And of course, former Navy SEAL Chuck Farrar, <laughs> who would work on the movies, you guessed it, Navy SEALs, and who directed uh, Navy SEALs, folks? There's a King's Dominion, uh, there's a Stephen King connection here. Is it uh, Tom Holland or no? Um... It's an eight, he directed two 80s Stephen King movies. Oh, is it Louis Mark? Teague? Louis Teague, who directed oh, from, Cat's oh. Eye and Cujo. Yeah. And Alligator, too. That's right. Oh. What a good run for Alan. And uh, the Romancing the Stone sequel, Jewel, Jewel of the Nile. Not great. Jewel of the Nile. Yeah. No, not, yeah, not, I agree. No, not great. <laughs> no, not uh, but he also directed Hard Target. And I'm sorry, he wrote Hard Target, which was John Woo's uh, English language debut, from what I can remember. And produced by Sam Raimi. Yep. That, see, this is all connected here. He also did. Talk about Halloweenies Dominion. He also worked on Arlington Road, but the script officially was by Aaron Kruger, who did oh. Scream uh, Three famously. Uh, and to name but a few, he's actually a, a counterterrorism expert nowadays. He's a counterterrorism expert nowadays, and he's, you'll find him on a variety of news networks. It's almost as jarring when you see him as it is when that when the blonde guy from Evil Dead Two shows up on CVS. Uh, so there you go. But listen, on the budget of $14 million, Darkman ended up making about $50 million worldwide, which I have as a roughly 350% money recoup if Gerberlytics checks out. Mac, you and I have been a fan of this movie for years and years. How, how do you feel about Darkman versus your feelings for Crime Wave? 
specifically. Oh, just a, a giant leap forward. I, I think Darkman is just a really fun movie. I, it, it's, it's one of those movies that it was, it did not meet my expectations at all. I think the trailer really sells it as a different kind of film. And then you watch it and it's so just bizarre. And it, I, I was saying that Liam Neeson brings such a gravity to the performance of this character. That's there's scenes where, where you know, his hand catches on fire and he's like, I, I, I took my hands. And there's, there's this gravity there. That's like, wow, this is, he's really giving a performance here. But then you have scenes where he's like, you know, <laughs> swinging from a helicopter into a, an executive room <laughs> saying, excuse me, you know, and then <laughs> flying back out. It's so the tonally all over the place, but some reason I still really enjoyed it as a kid. I, I think, you know, uh, the Elfman score is great. And I think that that, mm. that lends itself to it a lot because it, it feels like, you know, you're in that Batman universe still, you know, like, um, but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed it this time watching it. And I caught some things I, I didn't catch before the first time. So um, Yeah, Rothman, I think you also re- recently watched it, right? Yeah, you know, I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. And it, so it really did feel like a, just a total fresh rewatch. The thing I liked about it, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with the IP thing, is that like, you know, Raimi wanted to do The Shadow. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were like, no, we're not yeah. giving it to you. And instead he was like, all right, well, I had this original story. I'm going to go do this. And he made his own shadow, and honestly, it's a better movie than the shadow that came about out of Alex Baldwin. Russell McKay's The Shadow did so well. Yeah. <laughs> God. He I saw that opening night, and I think it was out of theaters before I even left the theater. It was like, I was like, where, where did it go? Um, great th- great theme song written by Jim Steinman, performed by Taylor Dane for The Shadow, though. Darkman uh, doesn't have that. Great. I will say the, the action figure line for Shadow is pretty fucking great, too. Isn't that just based on the Robin Hood figures or something like that? No, I wish, but uh, they at that point they're like right, they were closer the- to like the Dick. No, I want to. Th- no, they weren't closer to Dick Tracy figures. I take that back. They, they just had. I just remember there was one that was like an invisible one, like it actually could look invisible, which is as a kid I thought that was so cool. And I remember like the movie buying the figures and then coming home and being like, "Why did I buy these?" Like, not like I love this movie anyway. Yeah, they were cheap. That's why they were all on sale. Yeah, but that was the age where the action figures were always cooler than the actual film. Like I remember yeah. being really jazzed about Stargate. Oh and, yeah, and I was like, oh, I gotta get all these figures. I gotta, get, and I was like really into that. And the movie's like, it's like all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, video Justin, game is better than the movie. Justin, you joke about them being based on Robin Hood toys, but they are made by Kenner, so I'm mm. sure a lot of the same molds are used. Oh, hundred percent. Probably wouldn't be surprised. No. Yeah. yeah. It's like how Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, used the same uh, cells as Jungle Book for a lot of sequences. That's why Baloo and Little John have similar motions, by the way. Fun fact. Disney you know, was very cheap in the 70s. Not that much has changed when you think about it, but uh, there you go. It's kind of weird with Darkman, too, is that like as much as it was like on paper a success for Raimi, like, they still walked out of it feeling like it wasn't their movie. You know, like It was, it was kind of like a defeat for them. Um, like there's a quote from Rob Tapper well, where he talks yeah. about it and he said like the experience in Darkman was very difficult for Sam and me it isn't the picture we thought it should be based on the footage we shot and all that the studio got nervous about some kind of wild things in it and made us take them out which is unfortunate we fought until the very last minute to get someone back in and a lot of it was what the audience really liked um, and yeah it's just interesting because it's like even now even when they're still in like they're now in the studio space they're still like the underdogs, you know, they're still like fighting and scrapping f- together to make sure that they have a place or a foot in the door, you know? Um, well, know, you mentioned the universal thing, Mike. It's funny because at, at least universal, despite maybe having some 
classic back and forth between producers and, and filmmakers, right? This happens all the time. But at least it must have worked out good enough because they agreed to assist good old Dino De Laurentiis, Rothman, your favorite. Dino. Oh, Dino. He's back. Steven. And they agreed to help him out with the production of Army of Darkness. And we talked a little bit about how Army of Darkness was nearly the second entry of the franchise. It was pitched that way. I think it was for uh, some distribution. Was it Can uh, Vanderbilt back in? The, for, they, uh, uh, refresh my memory on that. Irvin Shapiro just started putting it into the trades because right. he saw an opportunity to, you know, it's a horror movie, make a sequel, make some money. Pretty cool artwork, too, as we discussed on the Evil Dead 2 episode. And as a matter of fact, this Army of Darkness is dedicated to Shapiro, who, who passed away before the movie came out, which I thought was very... He came famous. up with the title. Army of Darkness was his. Right. That's right. Now, so, you know, Raimi at this point in, in 89, 90 is, is working for a legendary movie studio with, as you mentioned, Rothman, Robert Tappert. He's working with his brother, Tappert. Things are going great. Things were not going <laughs> so smooth for our beloved... Ash Williams, though, a.k.a. Bruce Campbell. Rothman, I know you've got a little history on, on what Campbell was going through between specifically Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. Yeah. Do you want to do that now or do you want to go to talk when we we're talking about Ash? Like, I didn't know which one because I could go through his background here. I mean, it, it, it kind of ties in. Yeah, let's talk. We'll talk about the character of Ash later, but let's talk about what Bruce Campbell was. Uh, oh, was totally. To yeah. So, I mean, honestly, God, this is it's it's pretty dark. Um, yeah. You know, in not fun 80- dark like a cabin. No, no, no. This is like you'd think, you know, oh, Evil Dead 2. Awesome star. Well, kind of, because uh, after Evil Dead 2. He moved to Los Angeles because he had some money. He basically says, I'm going to read a lot of quotes through here um, just to kind of give you some character. Because as we know with Campbell, uh, he's got a great voice. And he has one of the things I really stress with these quotes is that as dark as this is, he still, I mean, obviously hindsight's 20-20, but he has like a Mm. a nice tongue-in-cheek quality to it. So, uh, you know, keep things a little light here, you know? Just to add to that, Rothman, I, uh, for the research for the show, I bought the audiobook for yeah. If Chins Could Kill, and hearing him, at re- hearing, him at read it, hearing him read it is a lot of fun. Yeah, because he's just, I mean, you could just see, you could hear his voice on this page, and it's, it's great. I mean, you'll hear it here. I'll try, to, I'll try to do my best, Campbell, but not really. I'm going to leave it to Bruce. Um, <laughs> he talked about when he moved to, to Hollywood, he said, you know, flush with cash from the sequel, I promptly bought what was most likely the last house in Southern California priced under $100,000, a great starter home on Delight Street in the outlying community of Canyon Country. Getting accustomed to the insanity of California real estate was the biggest adjustment I had to make in moving west. Back home, I gave up a two-story home on a tree-lined street in a good location that had cost only $35,000. Now, I had a single-story home on the edge of the desert with a dirt backyard for three times that much. So... He agreed to work in television, which was a huge deal because most of the, the folks at the time were like, no, no, no deal in the TV. And the agent was like, his, you know, his manager at the time was like, you can make a shitload of money on TV. And he, immediately, you know, he had a demo reel, which, you know, obviously had his work with Evil Dead and Crime Wave, Evil Dead 2, and a couple other stuff he had done um, previously, especially his work that he did that met his, you know, his first, his first wife, Catherine. And he got a job with Knott's Landing. And, you know, you think like, oh, great. I, I, I agree to go to do TV. I get my, I get a TV gig. Well, it would be uh, he wouldn't get another TV gig for another six years. <laughs> so, at that point, the bills start racking up. You know, he has this new house. Uh, he goes and takes Maniac Cop, but he was still broke, and he was so broke that for the Maniac Cap, uh, Maniac Cap, for the Maniac Cop, the cast party, he had to actually leave and go to tend his security guard. So this is what he said. And Maniac Cop, Halloweenies Dominion, written by Larry Cohen. 
Yes. Mm. Oh, good, good, good. And good starring Cohen. Tom Atkins of Halloween 3 fame. And directed by one of my favorite filmmakers, William Lustig. So he says, uh, so there I was, guarding beer. Frankly, I was hoping to snag a boring assignment at some obscure part of the facility, but that's not my lot, that's not my lot in life. Gate two was the trucking gate, and all vehicles coming in or out of the plant had to pass by us. Each night for eight hours, we had to tag and weigh a never-ending stream of trucks hauling beechwood, beechwood aged just like the ads say, grain and beer. My gate partner and I got along pretty well until he recognized me. And his, he talks about how his like gate partner would be like, "Hey, say groovy, say groovy." So <laughs> this is hell, basically hell. Yeah, this is. He did find a silver lining in this. He said eventually the the DTEX assignment spared me from the hell of gate two. Uh, so he got to just kind of walk around the complex on an eleven a mile route. Uh, and he was like key punching a handheld. Now, clock Mike, sorry to cut you off, but you, you say the, the hell of gate two. You're not referring to the movie. No, not two. the gate two. No, 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 no. You're talking about gate two at the Anheuser-Busch <laughs> No, no, gate two at the Anheuser-Busch. But so at this point, not great. And so mm. he takes, uh, he takes a, a movie called Moontrap, a sci-fi movie that was shot in Michigan. And then he also took another uh, horror comedy. You know who's in that? Utah called... Walter Koenig. Walter Koenig's in it. Nice, nice. And then so he took another one, Sundown, a Vampire and Retreat that was filmed in Utah. And you know who starred in that? Hmm. No, um, David uh, David Deborah Carradine Fo- and uh, Deborah Foreman. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Deborah Foreman. Okay. All right. So at this point, he's got <laughs> we also took a beat for Deborah Foreman. Like, ooh, okay. yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Still not making a ton of money, but he uh, at that point he's going to try to do the producing cap. So he tries to find financing for Man with the Screaming Brain. Doesn't doesn't happen. In fact, fun fact: the movie that movie doesn't even come out until 2005. So that should tell you how much of a hell that was. But he still sticks to the producing thing, so he returns to Michigan to find financing for Josh Becker's Lunatics of Love Story. And this more or less kills his marriage with Christine uh, DeVoe. Here's what he talks about with that. All those months of making uh, magic uh, in Michigan were having another effect on the California home front. A cold wind of alienation was blowing. Fueled by other follies over the years, lunatics wound up being the straw that broke my can- my my, camel's back, my wife's back. Uh, my daughter Rebecca flew out to Michigan so she could drive back across the country with me. We had a great time taking pictures and writing a book about the experience. But when we got home, Halloween day, something was different about the place. Margarita, a woman who helped out around the house, was there, but Chris wasn't. I took Rebecca and my young son Andy trick or treating. His dinosaur costume was a big hit with the neighbors. I love how he adds that. When he got home, Chris was still nowhere to be seen. I put the kids to bed and killed time by unpacking and watching television for a couple hours. But with each passing minute, my sense of dread intensified. It wasn't women's intuition, but I knew something was up. Chris was never one to stay out late. About 11 o'clock that night, she came home, but there were no hugs and kisses. Instead, Chris said on the other side of the dark kitchen, Hey, how you doing? Great to see you. I've been thinking a lot about things, and I'm not sure we want you back. Excuse me? Chris wasn't mean, but there was a resolve in her that I hadn't seen, and I'd only seen one other time, uh, when she was giving birth to Rebecca, and I knew she wasn't pu- bluffing. I said, is this open for discussion? Silently, she shook, her, she shook her head no. How soon can you find a place to stay? Um, all right, so not great. Um, uh, <laughs> things thanks. are still not great. So filming lunatics actually warranted some really great, uh, stories. Uh, and you should read them in chins. There's one where they do this like huge prank on their friend and you could just tell he's kind of at this crossroads in life, like figuring out what the fuck is going on. So it should be noted that in 89, he's actually, I mean, he's still pretty busy. Um, you know, he has a camp, but it's like, you know, busy with quotation marks. He's like, you know, he has a cameo in Scott Spiegel's the intruder. 
He helped produce Ivan Ramey's Easy Wheels. He had a starring role in J.R. Bookwater's 1989 horror movie, The Dead Next Door, which Ramey served as an executive producer on under the, the pseudonym The Master Cylinder, which is so weird. So then things start to kind of turn around a, a little bit when he starts working on Fangoria's first feature, Mind Warp, because this is where he uh, met his second wife, his, his current wife, Ida Guerin. But the shoot was like fucking hell. I mean, he, he talks about this. This is what, uh, I mean, they, they made him like basically, it was like out in uh, Wisconsin. It was like middle of like the fucking winter. So it was freezing. It was basically like the crime wave shoot where it was just like icy as hell. But they made him like, it was like a cheap movie. And so they made him like go through actual like refuge and like landfill uh, stuff. So he got all these cuts. Mm. Uh, this is in his, uh, his quote. It really wasn't a surprise when I got a nasty cut in the dirt one day. The immediate concern wasn't whether I would be all right. It was more about whether shooting would continue. Since the same makeup effects guys from the Evil Dead days were supervising this film, I knew what items they carried in their set bags and immediately asked for some 355. This stuff, now discontinued because of its questionable manufacturing process, was surgical adhesive developed in the rice paddies of the Vietnam War in the heat of the battle. It could be poured directly into the wounds for a quick fix. This oh, was God. as close to war as I'd ever been, so I glued my fingers shut, covered it with dirt, and went back to digging. So, yeah, so during this time, he, 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 meet, he meets Ida, uh, and, or Ida, and um, he basically says they, they were like, they, they, they kind of, they had to romance her because she was kind of like uh, giving them some guff. And it's funny because uh, I guess she, 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 cause she was the costume designer uh, for this film, Mind Warp, and um, he, was, he was trying to warm up to her. Eventually, they did, and they, they connected, uh, and here's what he said about marrying her. It's an individual thing, but eventually I get to the point in a relationship where it either intensifies, as in consummates, or comes to an end. Personally, I was eager to apply the lessons I had learned from my first go-around. Ida had never been married before, but she seemed interested enough to give it a whack. Within a year of meeting, we decided to go for it. This time around, our wedding ceremony was exponentially larger. All of 20 people were invited. We chose another non-denominational church in North Hollywood known simply as the Little Brown Church. Ronald Reagan married Nancy in the same building, and I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but it seemed to work for them. And it worked for them also, <laughs> you know, because they, you know, they stayed together. They, they, they went on to go and work eventually an army of darkness which he says was like the biggest test to their relationship he said I mean, later says it was like probably the stupidest thing he could have done because it's like it was such a test on the relationship because it's just like you know as we'll talk it's, it was a hell of a shoot but yeah sorry for all the long digression but that's where at, that's where bruce our hero was for uh between evil dead 2 and and this one so you know well, that's look. If you want the history of these people, this is, you came to the right podcast, folks. I don't know, yeah. I don't know, I don't know what you thought you were getting into, but uh, here we are. I mean, what can I say? But it's funny because I feel like he has such a bad road, but things really start to pick up for him in the positive sense leading up to Army of Darkness. Like you said, he, he got remarried, and he was getting a lot more film roles, even if they were minor roles and minor projects. He wasn't necessarily having to work the graveyard shift at Anheuser Busch anymore, doing security. You know, so things were looking, things were kind of on the up at this point. He reconnects again with Rami. Of course, Rami was not going to do Army of Darkness, you know, without Bruce Campbell as Ash, despite all the uh, controversy that, that that came with it. And, and when it comes to Army of Darkness, Rami told Cinefantastique this. He said, this is back to kind of hands-on filmmaking that we grew up with. And here's the production breakdown of this. It was filmed. The, the main shoot was 55 days which I think is, again, like six months shorter than the Evil Dead shoot was in the cabin. Uh, a lot of stage work took up to 37 days. 
and there are 27 days uh, on the castle set and other outdoor areas. And here's a pop quiz for all of you. Does anybody know what country Army of Darkness filmed in? Mac, do you know what country Army of Darkness filmed in? Not, the, not only the U.S., but somewhere else? No, you're right. It's just the United no. States of America. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, uh, I'm pretty else. sure it's just <laughs> here's something more specific. Area, okay. <laughs> here's something more specific. Does anybody know where it was filmed in the United States of America? And what significance that area has to another major cult motion picture? Vanderbilt, do you know where it was filmed? Well, it's uh, California deserts. Yeah, it's, it's Bronson Canyon and Vasquez Rocks Natural Area Park. But where was it filmed near? Specifically, a famous actor's Lion Preserve, Mike Rothko. Oh, oh. Yeah, Tippi Hendren's uh, Lion Preserve, and also uh, yep. filmed uh, near Griffith Park at the Bronson Caverns, where Batman, the, the Batmobile, uh, That's right, the of. cave is from mm. Batman, the, the original yeah. show. But Tippi Hedren's Lion Preserve is very famous because it was they made, they made a movie there. Roar. It's basically based on their <laughs> life. It's called Roar. Yeah. And if you haven't seen Roar, folks, it is quite the experience. If you want to just see, you know, basically untamed. I mean, I guess they're quest- kind of tamed lions, but listen, you can't tame a lion. If you want to just see dozens of lions and tigers and all types of animals roaming through people's houses and being treated like house cats. This is the movie for you. Just watch the trailer on YouTube. It is a wild movie to experience. <laughs> this reminds me of the Richard Pryor bit from Sunset Strip, where you talk about when he's on safari and he sees all the lions. It's different than when you see it at the zoo, because he goes, you'd know, be walking around the zoo like, hey, lion, and grabs his dick, you know, taunting <laughs> the lion. But you wouldn't do that at the uh, preserve. No, you would not do that. No. Tippi Hedren's Lion Preserve. I mean, this place literally gave her daughter, Melanie Griffith, like a big scar on the back of her head because the lions, you know, when giant lions are playing with you, <laughs> you know, they treat you like a rag doll, basically. And if you're a little, you know, Melanie Griffith at the time, God bless. But she still loves those lions. I mean, I guess if you grow up around it, it just kind of comes with the territory. Uh, that's a territory I'd like to stay away from. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, come on. Yeah. That sounds pretty nutty to me. But here's the thing. The days were hot because you're shooting the stuff in the desert. You know, the days were hot. The nights were cold. But again, and Mike, you said, I mean, it wasn't the most easygoing production because Sam Raimi wasn't some big established name at this point. He didn't have the, the carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. But it still was just eons away from the literally painful and psychological toll that the production of the original Evil Dead had on its cast and crew. But Mike, I know you also had a couple notes you wanted to, to, to add here about what Bruce Campbell had to say about some of the, the extras involved in the production. Because versus, <laughs> evil, when you think about Evil Dead 1 and 2, there are no extras in those movies. With the exception of, I guess, Evil Dead 2, when they land the plane, you see them being helped. There are no extras in those movies. This is an extreme exception to that rule, though. Yeah, he. Uh, it's funny. He has a whole long digression about this, about how like the extras were just a little wild. He uh, he said, night shooting also made it hard to keep track of another animal, the Hollywood extra. <laughs> most of these folks come, I love that. It's such a Bruce Campbell way of saying it, but most of these folks come well prepared for the long day ahead of them. Any extra work worth their salt shows up readier for any kind of weather, provides their own chair and the thickest book they could find. Some of the less motivated folks snuck out of the available light, which was easy to do, and passed the night sleeping, or in one scandalous case, making love inside the castle set. Mating in a skeleton suit was quite an accomplishment because as a monster myself, I also played Evil Ash, I couldn't even get the hang of urinating. 
So uh, he doesn't understand how they had sex. But he, he, goes, um, he goes, I usually get along well with extras. In many cases, they are instructed not to talk to the actors, but I have no problem interacting with them as long as it's not distracting from the job at hand. Most background artists get a feel for the film they are working on within a day or two, where their characters fit in the scheme of things and the general tone. But like any profession, some folks just don't get it. One guy learned the trick of finding the lens. He knew just enough to be dangerous. It wasn't until viewing rushes that we saw what a gigantic camera hog he was. God bless the man (laughs) for his enthusiasm, but damn him all the same for his lack of discretion. And then he said, another man, a Mr. Ryan, managed to fall into the opposite category, that immovable object. During a scene where my character is led in chains back to the castle, basically the opening, I was surrounded by a column of soldiers. Sam gave these men rigid instructions to keep pace and to conduct themselves in a soldierly fashion, and he made them maintain a unified marching cadence. Geographically, Mr. Ryan was at the back of the line, far from Sam's discerning eye. He was, however, about four paces in front of me, and I witnessed his refusal to cooperate with any such thing. Sam seemed, seemed satisfied and heading off to, uh, to prep the shot. And I said, hey, pal, I asked, as friendly as a, as a chain man and scorching heat could, uh, you're going to do what the director asked? Uh, he turned back to me. I'm not in the army. I don't have to do this if I don't want to. True, I agreed, but you also don't have to get paid either. With that, Mr. Ryan threw down his spear and stomped off into the desert, never to be seen again. And uh, he basically has you know, this entire list of all the extras that either got injured, sidelined, or, you know, all this other stuff. So not easy for them. (laughs) Not easy for really anybody on this set. I mean, everyone basically says, you know, that they had, um, it was a hella shoot, but they, you know, they still believed in it, obviously, because Raimi was so well prepared. But it's just, you know, the demands are very high, and it's 100-something days in the desert. I was looking, I was watching the men behind the army, right? The, this little featurette on one of the DVDs and, uh, Nicotero was saying that, uh, you know, you have to be, you have to be very skilled to be in those, those, the deadite costumes, you know, the dead costumes for the army of the dead, but you also have to be really dense because it was so hot out there in those costumes mm-hmm. oh. and you just see them. There's a, there's one part where they're just kind of filming them walking and they're all talking about like, well, that guy's good and that guy's all right. You know, <laughs> they're like, it was just it was just a slog to be like out there trying to like give a performance in those giant suits so you know the extras they had a lot of a lot of weight on their shoulders unfortunately oh yeah i mean god bless them and, and, and mac like you this, mentioned you know, mac yeah. you mentioned nicotero and you mean you're talking about greg nicotero who we'll be talking about in our yeah. special effects section for sure he's we've actually talked about him in other episodes i think uh did he also work on basic instinct am i out of my mind at this I point in our trajectory, yeah, I think so. Anyway, we'll talk about him a little bit later on. But Mike, go ahead. You want to say something else? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say to, to echo Max, like I, I believe Marcus Gilbert, who played uh, the you know the Lord, he Perfect. said that he he he, uh, he lost like eleven pounds some days uh, from mm. the from the water weight and from the sweat that they got from the fucking suits out there. Look, I, man, it, I'll also yeah, say fuck. this: I've I Mac and I lived in Arizona, and it's hard to explain. Obviously, Arizona is more of a dry heat, but. I mean, it gets, you think it gets hot and like muggy in, in Chicago, like get ready for the experience of straight heat with no fucking around of, of the, of the Southwest of the United Ooh, States of America. I can't, imagine, I, I can't even imagine like just the, the, what's it called when you have the, oh, like heat stroke. Heat stroke. Mm-hmm. I can't Would imagine the amount get, of people yeah. that had heat stroke. I mean. <laughs> or like rashes. I, I get a fucking rash if I go to the gym. 
Like I like last week I was like complaining that I was like, well, I started running again. And not to get too TMI on here, but I was like, fucking Christ. Like, I can't believe I got, like, you know, I guess it's chafing or whatever. But, like, I, that was just from running on the treadmill. Reading this, I was like, I, I can't even imagine what my skin would be doing during Ugh, this gross. situation. It'd be just a fucking nightmare. But Got to yeah. make, make that money. But despite, yeah. you know what, despite it all, despite the, the somewhat torturous production because of all the makeup and effects and costuming involved, I, I read this from a lot of the stuff I'm going to get here and, and relay is from John Kenneth Muir's The Unseen Force, the films of Sam Raimi. Really great source of information about Raimi's movies behind the scenes, basically from Evil Dead all the way to Spider-Man 2. He, he, interview, he interviews a lot of terrific people behind the scenes, including for Army of Darkness, Richard Grove, who plays Duke Henry. And Grove compared Raimi to a big kid with a camera. He had enormous amounts of energy and enthusiasm for what he was doing. He was constantly excited. He did say that Rami would often play good cop when the new issues did arrive and leave, and leave them to the bad cop. And, and who do you think the bad cop was? Bobby Tapert. That's right. Robert Tapert, Vanderbilt. Bad Bobby Tapert. He, he played bad cop. He wasn't afraid to, uh, to tell people to get in line to, in ship-shape condition and whatnot and uh, to move along, as it were. As we know, as we've learned as this podcast, as the season has gone on, Ian Ab- Abercrombie, who plays wise man, I, he's Merlin. He's Merlin. He's Merlin. <laughs> Are we worried about, is, were they worried about getting sued? Who owns the rights to the King Arthur legend? Anyway, nobody. Public ex- or exactly. Maybe he could have negotiated for more money if he had a name like that's Merlin. true. Oh, that's a good point. You know, that's a good point. Like well, Abercrombie, by the way, who also played Mr. Pitt on <laughs> Seinfeld. Wait, that was yes. him. Oh yes. my god! Oh yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> he he's said, also in Inland Empire. Yeah, he's also on a Great Tales from Crypt episode where he appears on a platter as a head later on. Spoiler alert. Anyway, listen, he said that Raimi knows film backward and forward. He doesn't play around too much, even in the downtime. And he's got his eye on everything. And Grove adds this compliment by saying that Raimi had done a complete visualization of every single shot. Every shot was mapped. It was just fantastic because the way he had the shots set up was so neat. It was almost done in that old vault of horror style, which I thought was just magnificent. And this does have the air of a Tales from the Crypt episode for sure. So, Guys, I, I got to ask you a question as, you know, creative types, mm. firing filmmaker types. Can you even imagine, can you comprehend being the boss man on a set like that? I know. No. <laughs> Fuck. I can't wrap my head around it. Especially because, when well, you think about Sam Raimi in terms of Sam Raimi feels like the kind of guy who I would have known because he's Midwestern and, you know, mm-hmm. it, it baffles me. Like, mm-hmm. it just confounds me how, how you could be the boss. I think you know what this man, but I think that because all of our minds, as creative as we can be, pat ourselves on the back, they just don't work on the same, if not level, the same speed that Raimi's does. I think that when you're a visionary like that and you have got it all plotted out, I think in addition to that, you are able to figure out how to maneuver other people around you to achieve that vision. That's why when you see behind-the-scenes stuff with Rami, it's you rarely see him stressed out. He's always kind of playing around with his filmmakers. I think that you have to kind of have something off about you just in general to make it in the business, period. But there has to be something even more off just to be able to, to make a movie, especially something as uh, close to his vision initially as this one was. Rothman, did you have something to add, add to that? Yeah, I mean, he's... he's uh... I mean, I mentioned before with like the multiverse movie, but 
if there's anything that's going to be a Ramiism of it, it's the fact that he's able to kind of just have the strength and the endurance to handle all the different points of, of uh, articulation that comes with this, that sort of narrative, because you see it here. I mean, he's uh, to, to, to borrow from spoon, he's got a ma- mathematical mind. And uh, mm. I, I think that like, you know, when, when Bruce is talking about even just the blocking for things, it's fucking crazy. It's just crazy. Like he, he, here's his quote on this because it's, it's really important to show like, what Mike was talking about just now about like, how do, how do you, how would you keep a set going like this? Yeah. It, when you think about, yeah, a production like this would be hard enough, but the way they do this production and the way it's a Raimi movie and how complicated he makes every shot and every beat, it's like it, it, it compounds it even more. And then you think about the choreography here. So he says, this is fucking crazy. And I started getting a headache thinking about it. Bruce says, after six weeks in the desert, we settled in for months of studio work. Sam Raimi continued his undisputed reign as master of the technical nightmare. This time he reduced me to acting by numbers, literally, through a process called introvision. It was one of the few instances where the old cliche, it's all done with mirrors, really applied. Mirrors were part of this front screen projection process. 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. Those numbers barked out via megaphone by an effects assistance, all correlated with specific movements of an animated skeleton that I had to interact with, in this case, during a sword fight. At 34, I had to arrive at a a critical mark on the floor. At 35, I turned toward a specific shot on the rear screen since I couldn't actually see the skeleton. At 36, I duck a swipe from the skeleton. And as, a, and, and as I rose, a live-action puppet skeleton attacked me from behind. I'd have about 2.5 seconds to fend him off before number 40 when I'd take a swing at the animated skeleton. By number 42, the beast would be defeated, and I'd be off to the next fight. Notes from a director for scenes like this take on a bizarre twist. Sam, uh, Bruce, 38 wasn't right. It was late. Bruce, I know. I was still thinking about 36, but I think I nailed 40. Sam, yeah, that was better, and you've got more time before 42. Maybe a second. Bruce, okay, (laughs) no sweat. Yeah, that's where I'm talking. I'm like, and that's just one scene, and that's in the studio. Now, imagine like that type of process. He's just so specific, and I think that's the thing that that no one really ever talks about with Raimi, is that like he's so complex as a filmmaker, and I think that's why, as you read up about him, you have so much talent that is like, no, I want to work with him. Like, but that at the, at the same time, it's like afterwards, they're like, they're like, oh no, he was great. He had it all together. Fucking chaotic experience. Yeah. <laughs> like, Mac, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know if Vanderbilt mentioned this, but like to, to the complexity of his shots and things like that, that he would, you know, film a scene, but he'd have like multiple cameras filming different angles of that scene to get different things so they could use certain things for background and he was really trying to get the most out of shooting. And I think when you're on that level thinking at that level of, well, we're going to do this scene, but we can also get this and this and this and this. I mean, you are just in it. And it sounds like a lot, but I mean, when you watch that battle scene, there's so many different perspectives and so much covered. And they only had so many bodies to, you know, I mean, so it's like exactly. it is kind of, yeah. it made it feel larger. And I think that speaks volumes, you know? You know, usually you've got the second unit director doing that. And there was a second unit director on this movie, but in a lot of ways, I mean, Raimi is acting as editor, you know, first unit, second unit, third unit, everything. I mean, you could you could see, especially starting with Evil Dead 2, you could really see that everything was much more planned out because they had time and support that they didn't necessarily even have on that first one, where a lot of it kind of had to be, how do we work around not having a budget? You know, they, now they kind of had a budget for this one, especially. 
Maribel, you're you're smiling. I'm not sure. I, got, I, I, I just thinking about the idea about how so many people who are in like in my circle, people I know, like on Twitter, talk about how they wanted to direct the film and this the other thing. I'm like, you guys can't even handle your day to day lives. Like, how can you fucking <laughs> exactly handle a fucking set with Ugh. extras and? A cinematographer and the gaffer, like everybody, and you got to dealing like, with producers, dealing with the money, dealing with you've got to yeah. tell everybody what to do, and dealing with actors who are the craziest people on, in the <laughs> yeah. United States of America. Fucking God, bless them. God bless them. It just takes a, it just takes a nerve, you know. And like that's what they a lot of the stories I I was reading about. You know, it was all about control for Amy, and it's and it's not an ego thing. It's because that's the only way you get this shit done. And like mm-hmm. he talks about how like Campbell talks about how like he just like let the the camera rolling forever. Because he knew that, like, if he called cut, everyone would go out for a cigarette break, and he'd have to roll, you know, call everyone back in. So he says he like Ramey treated it almost like before digital. He would just keep yeah. the cameras going because if they did, they're all there, they're all at his disposal, and and he could point and say, "All right, go back to this, go do this, go do that." So they were it was relentless in that way, but it made sense because I mean, if you did, I can't imagine how this must this probably would take two hundred days to film if you didn't have that type of mentality. Yeah. Exactly. You know? Like if Stanley Kubrick had done Army of Darkness, <laughs> yeah. it would have been an absolute. It would have been like what if Napo- he had done Napoleon. You know, it would have been like yeah. a year long process to make it. Yeah. So I have, I have a few questions about the production of this movie and, and the movie itself, actually. And, and I, I literally am asking the three of you these questions. I've not prompted you as to what I'm going to ask. These are basic questions, folks. Don't worry about it. Uh, you'll be fine. Uh, so, you know, once again, we retcon. At the beginning of this movie, once again, whereas instead of Ash immediately being treated like a god, he literally says, my name is Ash and I'm a slave. But I feel like at this point, we already retconned the ending of you know, part two, so we've accepted at this point. However, I will say this. Let me ask you this question, Mac, about the tone of this movie, which makes the tone of Evil Dead 2 look like hour two of uh, Come and See, the movie Come and See. Look it up, everybody. This movie is basically an update of what if Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court met up with zombies? Okay, so my question is this, Mac. Does this movie work without the bridge and buffer of Evil Dead 2, from Evil Dead to Army of Darkness? I think you... I don't necessarily think you need the opening for it to work, because... No, I, I mean literally the existence of the movie Evil Dead 2. If, it just, if there was just Evil Dead, and he gets thrown back in time, and now we are in Army of Darkness... Would people have accepted the tone then and even now? Would it have been too jarring? Oh, you mean if they, if you were just jumping from Evil Dead to Army Darkness? Yes. F- and you from, didn't have the the dark comedy and you And you go straight to this movie, 1993's no, Army no, of Darkness. No, absolutely not. Yeah. No, you have to have Evil Dead 2. <laughs> that is the stepping stone. If you don't have that, it's it's so jarringly different. I think that hardcore Evil Dead fans would would have hated Army of Darkness. And at the time, some of them did still no. even still did dismiss it. It wasn't you know it became a cult hit obviously later on when people realized the, the true trajectory and the spirit of the series. I think, but Vanderbilt, right. what do you think? Well, I absolutely I think you need Evil Two, but I think what I like about all three of these movies together is that it's something I talk about with Jason Goes to Hell, as in the imagination of mm-hmm. that film. They realized everything had been done before, so let's do something different. Even Evil Dead 2 maybe cribs a little too much from the first Evil Dead. They're they're very similar, but it's that bridge film between the three of them. I think the more important question is, does Army of Darkness work on its own without the other two films, as that's how it was marketed to a wider audience? 
And I think it absolutely works. If you if it truly was mm-hmm. a standalone film, you'd maybe need a little bit more. Uh, what do I want to say? Uh, maybe a longer first act, kind yes. of like akin to akin to what they did with Evil Dead Two. Like have like maybe a seven minute true intro to, get as to him, what you're getting to get into. him back in time. You can't yeah. start with him back in time yeah. like that. If it was a true film, and I, that's something that makes me. But I listened to. Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell and everybody talk about the production. I always wonder, I was relating it to Cheap Trick in a way how whenever something didn't work out for the band, they would blame blame the record label. And I feel like sometimes the production with Sam Raimi stuff and Bruce Campbell stuff is the same way. How like, oh, why wouldn't they put Evil Dead 3 in the front of the title? I'm like, guys, you were making a movie for Universal. You knew what was going on. You knew you were trying to aim this towards a larger audience without alienating the Evil Dead fans, and I think that worked. You know, this is—it's actually a miracle in disguise. Well, Rothman, I want to get hear your thoughts on that, though. Like, does does this movie work if 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 you have that thirteen year gap? People love Evil Dead, and all of a sudden you're given literally this movie in 1993. No, because I mean, it's all—it's all a reaction to just two things. One is exactly what Vanderbilt was talking about, and that they did Evil Dead too. They repeated some of the beats of the first one. They really did need to swerve left and do something different, and so it's a reaction to that. It's exactly what Mac was talking about, and that you do need that 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 comedy to kind of blend you in because I, I, I think it would be affronting. Like if you did Medieval Dead right after Evil Dead One, you would have to lean a little bit more like the postscript ending of Evil Dead Two and be a little more serious than it is funny. And I mm-hmm. still think even then people would be like, "Oh, what is this?" And it also has to depend on what we discussed in our sequels list. Is like when was this released? So like if this was in '87. I just don't know if we're ready for that big of a jump into something that jarring. I mean, I think it would work. I think it eventually would find its cult and hit and everything. But I think 93 is such a good sweet spot, especially when you look back at where every other franchise is going. I mean, Mike just mentioned Jason Goes to Hell. This predates Jason Goes to Hell by like, what, six months? Like, it's like, you know, it's yeah. this comes out February. Jason Goes to Hell comes out August that year. Yeah. You think about like the other, I mean, lit- this movie literally comes out the same month as like Dead Alive. Great like, year for horror. It's a great year for horror. And it's coming off of three years of just horror finding a way to have fun and be tongue in cheek, which ultimately, you know, peaks to the watermark that I feel, which even over Scream is which is a new nightmare, where it just is like, okay, we've taken it to as far as we can where we can go. And I think that's really important to think about in the context of things when you're discussing Army of Darkness, is that like, yeah, it maybe it still didn't work then, but it at least makes sense. You know, I, I get where they're at with this. And so, but yeah, standalone, I, I think it does still work as a standalone. And and in a way, in 93, I think it works even better as a standalone because as we, ju- as I just mentioned too, is like, I, I do think there were a lot of expectations for this to be, at, you know, have a little bit more horror and they admit that. I mean, Rob Taper himself says like, we, eh, we probably should have leaned a little bit more into horror on this, but whatever. I mean, I think they did just fine. I, that goofiness works better than just doing the same movie over and I agree. over again. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think it's strange when it's different now where sequels are turned out like every year if it's popular, right? Where you only have so much time to come up with some things. You can't be too precious about what you get as a fan. Whereas back then, you know, you had a lot of time between those films. So I can see the fans at the time not loving it necessarily if they weren't on board already with Evil Dead 2's humor because they had a lot of time to course correct or do or make it scary or whatever it is they were hoping maybe... And then it didn't land, but I agree with Mike where, you know, I, I think it's, 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 it has found it or, or Justin said at the very beginning too, that, you know, 
the trajectory of the franchise, when you know that now and you go back, I think obviously it's found its its footing. Well, to go back to what Rothman was saying about the action hero and like where we were in 93, think about this. If this had been Evil Dead 2, as Shapiro was kind of positing it would be, but they just didn't have the budget, basically. That's why they ended up doing Evil Dead 2 instead of Army of Darkness. Think about who the heroes were in, on, in movies in, in the 80s. It was Schwarzenegger and Stallone. This was before the kind of everyman Bruce Willis character of Die Hard becomes the action hero in the 80s and the 90s, which is why it makes more sense for the character of Ash in the 90s, who's kind of like the guy who stumbles into the situation as opposed to this one-man yeah, army he, of he Schwarzenegger does, well, and Stallone. Think of, he, does predate, uh, he does predate John McClane. I never well, thought about that. No, no. He, he, no what I'm saying was it would have been a different movie, though, in 87. Yes. Because oh, army he, of darkness it, it would not have had that. the same tone as 93's Army of Darkness because I don't think you would have bought him as the, the, the one-liner action hero like Schwarzenegger and Stallone were at that time. But just think about, again, it's like what we were talking about. Everyone was doing the swerve. I mean, 93, it's fucking astounding. Like, we really should just do a podcast just 93. Like, what, was what the comes last out, action hero? Also? Yes, four, four months later. I was, that was the point I was going to make. Is that like, and, and guess what? Didn't work. Or it, didn't, it, it flopped at the box office also. I just think that we look, and now we look back on it, and we're like, wow, these are so ahead of its time. And, and that's just the way culture war works anyway. I mean, it's always one of those things where it's like, it's ahead of its time. People don't notice it until much later. And now we look back at these movies and we go, wow, the, the audacity of these films is what has carried them further than maybe some of their predecessors. And like, you know, cause you could look back at some of those box office hits that Stallone and, 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 uh, and Schwarzenegger had and go, all right, on paper, box office wise, this made a ton of money. It was a success, but we talk about this one more. And I think you could say the same thing with a lot of horror movies back then too. Um, you know, and I wanted to add, like Mike, you mentioned dead alive and we mentioned Jason goes down. Look at 92 and 93 and look at yep. how much Sam Raimi's style is seen, is influencing horror at that mm-hmm. time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go really bold here. There would be no Lord of the Rings trilogy without Sam Raimi. Yeah, absolutely. I truly believe that, that, that his work inspired over the years in the 80s. I know Jackson started in the mid to late 80s as well, but I think that if it wasn't for Sam Raimi... The influence he had, specifically on Peter Jackson. You, and if you watch Bad Taste, movies. if you watch Bad Taste, there's no denying that this man had watched Evil Dead and said, I'm going to do Evil Dead, but I'm going to do it you know, my way. Yeah. And then even Dead Alive a couple years later doesn't exist. I mean, oh. so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild to look at like that. Here's something else I want also, to say about we are title, showing though. we are showing Dead Alive at Cigars and Stripes the last Tuesday of May. Everybody come okay. on out. Well, there you go. So if you listen to this episode just in time, make sure you head on down this <laughs> Stripes. If it's 2024, what, you could message Vanderbilt and uh, you know basically and ask how Van, it was. What's going on this month? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. You talked about the title and people having an issue with the title. I, I actually think the title is excellent because this is kind of what Francis Ford Coppola wanted to call the Godfather Part Three: Army of Darkness. No, I'm kidding. He wanted to call it. <laughs> he wanted to call it the death of Michael Corleone. And they, they, years later now, it is called, the new cut is called The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, because even though it's in the same universe as those Godfather movies, he says it, it always felt like to him it was, a, it was a postscript, it was the coda, it was the epilogue. And when you watch this movie, it granted, it, it, it lives in the same universe as those first two Evil Dead movies, but this really does feel like the third act. 
Like this whole movie is basically just a 75-minute third act. And, it, and it, it's in the same universe, but it still doesn't feel, quote-unquote feel, like those first Evil Dead movies. And that's not, I'm not, not, that's not a detriment by any means. But I, I kind of i am fine with the fact that it's called Army of Darkness is what I'm saying. And- I think something about this movie, this movie was a lot of people, this people talk about gateway horror a lot. This is what a lot of people's gateway into psychotronic cinema, not necessarily just horror, but genre as a whole, because so many people that I meet our age, maybe older and younger, what rented this movie because they saw that poster, which is a cool poster Mm. or, you know, saw it on TV one day and said, what the hell is this? This is awesome. And had no idea that it was part of an existing series. And then went back and either discovered the other Evil Dead movies or just developed a love for cult cinema. I love the title. I love the poster. I think yeah. it's in the long run, it makes it, it allows it to stand alone as, as we, you know, you all just discussed. Medieval Dead is fucking great title though. That's like, a great it's title. So good. Oh, it, it's yeah. just so well, fucking I think good. What I was saying like, was it wouldn't make on. sense to call it evil. I, I, I don't have a problem with them not calling it Evil Dead Three. Oh yeah, Army no, of no. Darkness. You know, Medieval Dead's yeah. a great title though. No it's question. So good. That. It's so good. Like, I just keep thinking about it. Like Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, Medieval Dead. Like that's such a good fucking trilogy right there. And I almost want to like have like a a custom set made where it has that on there. <laughs> Ramey says he's going to do a new cut, kind of like what, what uh, Coppola did. Yeah. But for some reason, the, and, and he's going to call it Medieval Dead, like he always wanted to. But for some reason, it starts off with that scene at the Vatican with Michael Corleone talking to <laughs> <laughs> And then the rest of it's just Army of Darkness. And Winona Ryder's in there as, as her original role that she was supposed to have in Godfather 3. It's all retconned. Uh, it's, yeah. It'll be a beautiful thing. Here's another question for you. And I've been thinking about this hard. Is this accidentally the second greatest Arthurian movie of all time? What, next to Excalibur? Next to Excalibur. John Borman's Excalibur, which will never be touched, in my opinion. Mike, you didn't see it. I haven't seen Excalibur. I can't answer. Is this the greatest Arthurian (laughs) movie of all time? Because this is King Arthur's absolutely in this movie. Merlin is absolutely the wise man. Can I throw in the first night? I mean, I I like Sword of the Stone, though. Can I throw in the two episodes of MacGyver, where he went back in time? The, the Wait special a minute. Two-parter. Are you telling yeah, me yeah, what? that MacGyver on the MacGyver show with Richard Dean Anderson what went back only. in time in an episode? Yeah, it's an Arthur. It's a it's a two part uh, episode where he like I think he hits his head or something and ends up back in Arthurian times. Oh, it's good. Oh it's- my god! <laughs> Wait, did that did that did that air before or after James Brown played an alien in Miami Vice? <laughs> I was going to go there. Ridiculous. I was going to go there with that. Like, uh, probably the 80s, of, folks. Of the era. Of the era. Unreal. Adam MacGyver, Arthur. One. What a fucking crazy era. One. All right, let's put let's insane. get the poll quote out there. You know, to be fair, I've never I don't think I've actually seen all of um the musical Camelot with Richard Harris and Vanessa Redgrave and uh so maybe maybe that's the second best mm. Arthurian movie. But uh, no offense to, of course, the great King Arthur with Clive Owen and oh, First God. Night with Richard Gere as the American uh, Lancelot. No, no offense <laughs> to those movies, of course. Camelot lives, as as uh, Sean Connery says. All right, that's the pull quote for this episode. Is this the second greatest Arthurian movie of all time? Uh, they haven't got it right for some reason, folks. We're going to talk about the distribution in a second here, but let's actually go ahead and talk about the at least four different versions of Army of Darkness that are out there. I feel like at this point, I've seen all of them. So to me, it's just one giant blob of a movie. You know, like I I remember things that I found out weren't actually in the original cut 
but I definitely saw in USA or on TV, and I saw the director's cut years later, and I've seen deleted scenes on YouTube, and I've seen Japanese cut scenes. It's, 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 it's a wild thing to try to, to break down what this movie really is. I bought the 95-minute director's cut, the bootleg VHS, the following year in October of 1993. At, on videotape. Uh, on videotape at the Weekend of Horrors, and I'm still seeing scenes that I didn't know existed. Like, yeah. In doing research for this episode, it was the first time I saw that opening where Ash is doing the narration from the, the what do I say, the post-apocalyptic future. I'm telling you, there, it, it, there's so many iterations of this movie out there, plus the lead scenes that did not make it into any of those multiple iterations, where it's, it's so hard to tackle what the definitive movie is, or even to remember what is the definitive movie. But I, the question I pose to you guys, do you guys have a favorite cut? I actually do, and this is going to be controversial in some ways, because I usually say, oh, you know, these producers and studios are always interfering. Yeah. I got to tell you, I, I prefer the theatrical 80-minute cut with right, the American ending, because the American right ending, which we'll you. talk about, versus the deleted alternate ending, matches the first 70 minutes much better than that bleak ending does. So I, I think the actual theatrical release is, to me, the best and definitive cut. That's Army of Darkness taught me the joy of the 80-minute movie. That's, yes. I was like, what do I love about this movie so much? And I realized that watching it again yesterday morning, that that movie does not slow down doesn't. for anything. No. And doesn't. you're watching and you're like, holy shit, we're already at the final battle. I mean, yeah, it, gives and- you the, the, it gives you the grace of a one-minute explanation as to what you're getting into. And then we're literally just off. Bam, and, action, and, action, action, action at the end. And that's the problem with the director's cut is that like, because I, I, it's weird. I'm, I'm split of two minds because actually the first screening for this episode was the director's cut. Because uh, Shout Factory, if you're looking for the definitive release of Army of Darkness, is that the, the one? Shout Factory, it has everything. Everything's in it. It has the TV cuts. It has the international cuts. It has the, the director's cut that was supervised by Ramey and actually features a commentary by Ramey. What's the quality mm. like on the director's cut? Oh, it's great. Edition? It's un- okay. it's unbelievable. Like I, it looked like it was the first time I'd really watched it, and it and it felt like I was watching how it was meant to be. Everything's clear. All the footage looks great, and it made me re- realize that like the ending, as much as I used to kind of like be like, eh, it doesn't really work. It works with the franchise. Like here's the difference that I see. It, fran- like like tonally, it really does match the the the, the, the sort of lunacy and um, also even quasi tragedy of the, the the franchise and it's actually not it, the way it's p- pulled off isn't as depressing as it is it kind of just kind of rolls into it like oh here's another misadventure he's going to be in and we'll leave it there right. but what ultimately sucks about the, the the director's cut and this is kind of astounding it goes in what you're saying justin and i, I kind of side with the suits and this is that the, the the battles go on forever and it's what you're talking about mike with like it loses the lean meanness of it and all of a sudden like i, I remember i was watching it with sammy and i was just like God, I can't believe this battle's going on for so long because I didn't realize that the battle scenes were longer in the director's cut. I just thought it was the ending mm. and a little different of the end oh. in the, the intro. And there's, the battles go on forever. And like, for, it, for I remember the director's cut, there's actually almost two battles because yes. <laughs> there's two there's two fronts of the army and right. the one front fails and then they they yep. take to the walls. Right? It yep. doesn't it change exactly the it. when the Eric the Red shows up too. Mm-hmm. Like, it shows up earlier. It goes on forever, and it's just it's too much. So I, I do think that... I believe it was Dino De Laurentiis saying, Sam, Sam, you have six <laughs> skeletons exploding. You only need three. He's right. And you know, to add to all this, this movie leans so much into the comedy 
And most comedies, as great as they can be, they really suffer in that third act because that third act usually takes place at the one hour, 33 minute mark and goes on for 15 minutes too long. Mm -hmm. That's why in this, in that battle scene specifically, Mike, that you're talking about, the reason I still think it works great for that theatrical release is because everything that the skeletons are doing and saying to me is extremely funny. Yes. But if you tackle on another 15 minutes, the joke will gradually, inevitably start to wear thin. Mac, what what do you think about the the last act? And did you need it to be longer, or are you happy with the theatrical cut? You know, I mean, as a fan, I enjoy watching the director's cut, obviously, just seeing the scenes that we've always heard about kind of thing. But yeah, true. It, yeah the theatrical cut is is the best, only rivaled by the television edit where the line, um, I, I never even seen these assholes before, is overdubbed to, I, I never even seen these eggheads before. <laughs> <laughs> I That's love, pretty I, good. I love I love uh, TV cuts. So my, my, that oh, uh, God, how does how do they handle the get the fuck out of my face? Uh, like, or they just probably just take that line out at this point. Get out of my like, face. Something. Yeah. Like that. The other dubs are pretty pretty good. You got some some shits turned to balonies. You've got your she bitch <laughs> to she witch. Um, mm. That's not bad. I mean, not too bad. And then the they tone. just kind of like yes, just silence some of the offhand shits and this and that. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm with oh, it you. Says, it, no, it was just dubbed "Get the hell out of my face." So not too bad. I'm, I'm with you, Justin, on that theatrical cut. It reminds me a lot of into what Mac was saying about it's fun as a fan. It reminds me of the that thing you do director's cut that's available on a Blu-ray, which is longer and gives some extra stuff with the band. But the reason you liked it is because you like the theatrical so, so much, you get to spend more time with these characters. Mm-hmm. But right. I can admit that the reason that thing you do works or that uh, Army of Darkness works is because it's on the shorter side. Of things think about halloween like you know I, I'll, I don't want to change the original one at all i don't want the i don't want anything added but it, yeah to max it's like i do enjoy watching like the scenes with like loomis sometimes that are added in just to be in that just kind of see different parts of that world in right. a way you know like from a fan perspective it is fun to see it but yeah like critically wise like no don't touch it like leave it alone and the s smart ending that's the ending that's, that's to me. Yeah, that's to me, like so you can ignore the TV show. You can add. You can ignore everything because I don't. <laughs> and maybe this is like the death of the death of the artist. Like Sam and Bruce Campbell seem to hate Ash and just think he's an asshole and think mm-hmm. he's a jerk. And I think you know he starts. If you watch those three movies together, he starts out as a wimp. He turns into a you know, a loudmouth action hero and eventually settles into his life that he figured out the only thing he was ever good at and that's killing deadites. And I think it's kind of a nice, happy ending for him in Army of Darkness and that it should just stop there. Well, I've got some notes about the trajectory that that Bruce Campbell saw the character take and and his take on Ash and, and how he is portrayed in all the projects after the first Evil Dead and, and the trajectory there. We'll have to save that for the next episode, folks. And also, in that next episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the distribution and marketing for Army of Darkness. We're going to talk about some of the Army of Darkness 2 slash Evil Dead 4s that could have come to be, but never did. And of course, we'll be talking about the music, the cast, the special effects. We've got a lot more to talk about in part two. Like I promised, just this part one right now is even longer than the director's cut of Army of Darkness. <laughs> so let's go around real quick, though, and give our plugs before we, we bid adieu to Evil Dead for this week. Uh, Vanderbilt, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, check out the... When's this episode airing, Mike? 
Uh, it will be airing on the ninth. Yeah, the ninth. Uh, May ninth is what day of the week? It's uh, Monday. That's a Monday. Yeah. Monday. Everybody, check out Sven Tooney this week because I'll be on it. Sven Tooney, the Sven Gulli spinoff. I'll be on Saturday night. They're doing a bucket of blood, and you're going to see a familiar face in a beret. So, that, so if you've got Me TV, right? If you got Me TV at yeah, home, yeah, I'm and I'm I don't know where it streams, but it'll end up on YouTube afterwards. I'm not sure how you stream Me TV. I, I'm sounding it's like an actual that channel man. on TV. If you got basic, if you got cable, it should be and, you should have Me TV. And I don't think they figured out how to get, get it as a streaming station yet. But yeah, check me out. We'll definitely National figure thing. out how to post stuff of you on there. It's like that's a pretty incredible, incredible gig. We're very happy for you on that front, Mike. It's pretty cool. Mike Gerber, anything to plug? Are you going to be doing any Dream Come True projects this week or anything like that? Um, well, I already had one Dream Come True and uh, worked on the Friday the 13th Part 2 commentary, which will be dropping on Friday the 13th for you folks with Vanderbilt and Caffrey. We're also going to be covering Lake Placid here on Halloweenies uh, to wrap things up for the the month of May. Minor minor May here. Yeah, minor May, a minor work as it is. <laughs> Rothman, what about you? Anything going on on, on the uh, Losers Club front or even the Halloweenies front that we neglected to mention? Uh, no, nothing yet uh, on the Halloweenies front. That's uh, all been covered. But um, Losers Club, busy month. We got Firestarter, Keith Thomas's remake that's coming out. with uh, features John Carpenter's score, which is a uh, mm-hmm. nice spiritual homage because he was supposed to direct it originally. Uh, and then we're going to be also uh, discussing Peter Straub's ghost story, which is uh, a pretty foundational text when it comes to horror literature and a very frightening book. So excited for that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we always can't stop, won't stop, uh, for both pods. So lots of stuff going down. That's right, baby. Yeah. You mentioned I'll be on the Lake Placid episode and then I'll be on that ghost story episode with you, Mike. And yeah. folks, if you want to read it and you want to read it in time to listen to our Losers Club episode, I highly advise you start now because yeah. it's over 500 pages and it's the smallest font possible. I think it's going to take me at least 10 hours total to read when all said and done. So get a read on and definitely uh, get your watch on and get your ears ready for our next time when we venture back in time to team up with Ash and discuss Army of Darkness. And when that does happen, we do hope that all of you will join us. Join, join us. us. Join us. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.